No job is too difficult, dangerous, or deadly. In color. We are the Spy Fi Guys, and this is Mission Impossible. Welcome to the Spy Fi Guys, where we cover spy fact, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Zach. And I'm Christian. And welcome back to our swinging 60s spy summer. All this summer, we have been breaking with our usual formula to cover exclusively fictional spy movies and TV shows made or set during the golden age of spy cinema, that is the 1960s. So once again, put on your go-go boots and your ascot because it's time to get groovy. All right. And this week, we have some guests with us. I mean, we figured if we're going to talk Mission Impossible, we should get one of the many Mission Impossible podcasts out there, and uh, the top two were busy, so we got you guys. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were the most no, these... available. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys are actually the best experts, experts on this subject matter. We have from Mission Impossible, who actually covers the TV show. Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Nathan. And so you guys started your podcast how long ago? Well, you're saying it's summer right now, so it's been about Oh, yes, a that's year. true. Ah. (laughs) i'll be honest time doesn't mean anything anymore i don't even remember yeah at some point in the past Mm -hmm. if i looked at a calendar and it said it was three years in the future and i got hit by a car i would definitely (laughs) i was thinking about that throughout this whole episode just because and well we'll get to other parts of it later that was like oh well this is shockingly relevant now but just the fact of okay being stuck in a room for that long and not having no concept of time really yeah it's, it seems a little relevant now <laughs> well that that's the thing about this old mission impossible show is going through and watching it it is freakishly relevant a lot of the episodes you're just sitting there going oh my god really <laughs> we covered an episode with a rigged election oh boy our black man is shot in the back by a police officer and wow. that's a whole subplot and that's maybe like the third most relevant yeah so i have a little experience with the tv show i've seen a few episodes here and there zach what's your experience with it nothing i knew nothing about it except that leonard nimoy was in it so i was waiting <laughs> for him to show up uh well, I think he's not until some of the later seasons, right? Yeah. Yeah, jokes on you. Did you got got. <laughs> gaslighted you hard as fuck. Wait till season like six. So shall we get into the episode? Yeah, this one's called Operation Rorschach, right? Not quite. Operation Rogosh. Yes, this is episode three of season one. And if you can find it, you can go and watch it before we start talking about it. So here's the synopsis. Rogosh is an operative for a country hostile to the United States. When he strikes, he typically leaves dozens, if not hundreds, of bodies in his wake. Rogosh has been spotted in Los Angeles, but he will not crack under normal interrogation methods. Briggs comes up with an unusual plan. IMF stages an accident where pedestrian Rogosh is struck by a car. When he awakes, he appears to be in a prison in his home country. Three years later. Well, that kind of gave away a lot about the episode. I don't know how you summarize this otherwise. <laughs> yeah. It does, but it's also, it's a lot of first act stuff. Like That's true. All of that with the car wreck, I think that might happen in the first five minutes of the episode even. Yeah. Because I, I remember three. watching this and going, just holy crap, they just straight up hit that guy. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a question. So, because I'm trying, I, like, I've seen a couple episodes, but it's been a while. Do they usually start with just going right into the theme song? Is there a cold open sometimes? There's no cold open. 
except okay. for in the 80s show they will do a cold open that will usually gotcha. be like something involving the villain and is very cheesy and then they go to the not gonna try and get you guys sued uh but yeah this is a little bit unusual despite it being a template episode in the fact that mm -hmm. usually you get him getting the mission briefing he right. goes to an apartment pulls out the dossiers he had all that then there's usually a part where they like open on them showing some sort of gadget and they're like and we have to convince roguish of this and then you know everybody's like mm -hmm. that sounds impossible and then you know they end up doing it they're usually not that hammy they don't say oh yeah that sounds impossible <laughs> like it's usually like oh it's a suicide mission and then they're like yes but it's not impossible actually that's still cheesy yeah, <laughs> I mean, and like, this is why we're podcasters, not writers. Let Nathan fool you. It is cheesy in the show too. He's just cheesier. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, this mission just got a little bit more impossible. Oh, I love that is from the uh, with the MI two uh, Ben Stiller skit, which is my favorite <laughs> thing about MI two. Uh, but we will talk say, about that the in the future. Yeah, so we have the credit scene with actual clips from the show. That's the thing that they do every episode, right? It's always from that episode. Yes. Uh, and it, it still persists actually, to... Yeah. You are going to say the same thing I was, which is everything Mission Impossible, they do that. The mm -hmm, movies, yeah. it's always clips from that movie. The mm -hmm. remake show, which is just a sequel show. And <laughs> this, it's always out of context spoilers. They're pretty good at showing it and never actually giving away a real spoiler. Like, there's yeah. only been one or two moments where you've gone, Wait, what? Did, I don't know that I wanted to know that. But, yeah, it's a thing. I mean, in the movies, okay, so there are a few deviations. In the 80s series, they show clips from every episode of the season or, you know, whatever. Oh, uh, okay. Uh -huh. And they do that different for each of the two seasons that it ran. And there's Mission Impossible 2, which is special. Which, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where they just show JPEG videos of, like... Of the Chimera. It was of Chimera, yeah. yeah. But we're not here to talk MI2 as much as I'd love to do that. <laughs> I've always been curious about the pitch meeting for that, because, like, it's, it's relatively unique to this franchise. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine the creator, like, pitching the studio, like, hey, I need money, I want to make this spy show, and check it out. So, at the beginning of every episode, we're going to have a hand light a fuse, and as the fuse goes, we're going to show clips that haven't happened yet. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Just the producers going, I mean, uh, no? We covered Mission Impossible 1, or mm -hmm. the 1996 one, the first yeah. movie, and we talked about this, and I mentioned that in Battlestar Galactica. Every episode also had clips at the end really of did. the opening credits. But I feel like those did give things away. Whereas the only stuff this gave away was that it looked like it was going to be an action-packed episode, which is not the case. <laughs> well, uh. the whole thing, and we talked about this a little bit in a Patreon episode that you weren't on, Aaron. But the whole purpose for the theme was to play engage people while they're making a cocktail and they're fucking like living uh, room. and then they'd see mm -hmm. clips from the episode and be like okay i'm a little intrigued and then that would hopefully huh. carry through enough to get through the mission briefing and the apartment scene i like and the yeah, assumption that just in the 60s americans were all alcoholics like much more than they are now I'm, yeah. <laughs> it's true it's true yeah, i've, I've seen go. bad men the 
Well, it definitely is exciting, and it definitely grabs your attention, this opening bit, especially with the, the, the fuse going mm-hmm. down. Or is it a hand, or I thought it was like a hand fuse. lighting the fuse. It's oh, the hand of the creator of this show, just so you right. guys know. It's the hand of Peter Graves, and they do a really weird, like, dolly camera thing. Look it up on All YouTube, right. it's funny. I've seen that. Oh, yeah, so speaking of Peter Graves, who plays Jim Phelps, who, Zach, you'll remember in the movie was played by, now I'm forgetting his name, John Voight. <laughs> John Voight, yeah. Right. No Jim Phelps here. So this is the first head of the IMF, Dan Briggs. He is the Captain Pike of the Mission Impossible. Exactly, yes, yes. Okay, that's a good comparison. I'm going to talk about Star Trek later, so I'm All right. set that set that up. Just to say something a little interesting, and I'm not sure whether you guys knew this. So Stephen Hill uh, is our lead, Dan Briggs. He is a Jewish man, and he's Orthodox. He basically couldn't deal with the scheduling on like Friday nights to Saturdays. He could not schedule episodes. So there are various amounts of episodes this season where Dan Briggs will show up usually in like footage from a previous episode, getting a mission briefing and then say, (laughs) well, I know this. uh, I know your head target because I don't know. We went to a cocktail party once, so you guys have to do this mission, and then he bails. It seems weird to me that an Orthodox Jewish person would want to be an actor with that limitation. I have no idea. Apparently, he was uh, difficult to work with as far as the stunts go. There was one episode where he had to be on a rafter and just decided, like, fuck this, I'm not getting out of my trailer. And (laughs) Barbara Bain, who plays Cinnamon, who is wonderful, ends up being uh, the lead of that episode. But proceed. I'm sorry. Ah, I keep cool. derailing you guys with fun facts. No worries. I mean, that's why we have you on here. Yeah. <laughs> that's what podcasting's all about. We don't have that experience about the TV show. So it's good to know. All right. So we start and like, and it very, does this, I assume this doesn't happen too much is that it actually says what month and year it's supposed to take place in. Does but it's important for this one. Yeah. So it says like October, 1966, we see, Dan Briggs pull up in a car, goes into the car next to him, and opens up the glove compartment. And in there, he finds the tape and an envelope. And it's not like a usual. Well, I don't know what cassette players looked like in 1966, but it was interesting. You like you don't insert anything; you just sort of place it on top, and it plays. It was a weird portable reel-to-reel, basically. Yeah, I get really That's... confused by the technology in this show. I remember <laughs> we were recording an episode, and I wrote like an entire two-page thing, just like oh, what is this device? It was so weird. It has like a cylinder and you guys are like, oh, it's uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, I'm young. Well, the other thing that, that happens all the time in this original first season run is the prevalence of open air furnaces. So many times they, they destroy the message in the usual mm-hmm. manner, which is like he just right. walks up to a trash can that's burning something or to this furnace in the middle of a factory and is like, no big deal. Let me just throw this in here and walk all away. The time. And eventually they no. get to the point where they actually coin the phrase self-destruct. So, right. See, I was waiting for that, but there wasn't that. When they have well, his mission, little briefing, it said, yeah, like you said, it says uh, destroy it in the usual manner. I think I even have it down that it says, please destroy this. <laughs> and he also <laughs> says, your mission if you decide to accept it. Instead of choose, to accept, choose it. to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. They do a lot of weird variations on it. What was it like? God, was it episode like 16, Aaron, where they finally do it like the yeah. right way? We haven't yet seen by Rogosh 
too much of the stock footage. Like they clearly haven't made it far enough into their schedule to start having to shoot around from Stephen Hill. But the opening to this episode, I think, is used in at least two other episodes in the first season. Just bits and pieces of it cut here and there. Like I know whole hog, the whole wow. sequence is used in like episode eight or nine. Like it's not far away. Yeah. And I guess they can do that because you never like see him talking or anything. So it's just you can put an entirely different mission over it, just have different photo insert. Makes sense. And yeah. on our podcast too, we have a lot of discussions about the mission briefing because it raises a lot of questions about how the IMF actually functions. That's a very good question. Like you start wondering, do they get their missions? Do they have lives outside of the IMF? Because when he goes through uh, his labeled IMF packet and starts picking people like it's pretty clear that you know cinnamon's a relatively famous model and rollin hand mm-hmm. who is martin landau's character is kind of this imitation celebrity man of a thousand yeah faces. man of a thousand right. faces and so like they clearly have lives but we still don't understand if they go in somewhere and get a mission brief or if like Dan Briggs is just walking around town and all of a sudden like, boom, somebody's giving him a mission brief and he had to go get lunch right after that. Just like it, we, we have lots of questions. Another big question that I always have are like all the second parties that like come in and say a passcode to him. Fuck it. I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin this a little bit. It's not going to full on ruin it for you, Aaron, but in the eighties mission impossible, there was an episode where Peter Graves walks up to a mime. <laughs> and starts, mime. yeah, starts saying <laughs> phrases to this mime, and he's like, uh, "Mime is a great profession," or something like that. He's like, "It always uh, requires a good heart." And then the mime reaches into his thing and grabs out like a key, goes behind his ear and shit, <laughs> hands it to him. He goes out. There's one where a Boy Scout leader meets him in the middle of the woods. It's goofy, but it begs the question, are wow. these people on the payroll? That is a great question. Zach, you were saying something? Well, I just figured they were sleeper agents where they work for the IMF, but they have a cover and their real life is their cover. That is one of the theories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think we kind of cover, like, or at least in our synopsis, we covered what the, basically what the whole briefing he gets is, is that, you know, there's this guy who's a terrorist, basically. And anywhere he goes, there's, you know, terrorist events happen so they but he won't be broken by usual methods so they have to do something different they also say that thousands of lives are at stake right so so the consequences oh, are that's large. right yeah and so we get yeah we get the apartment scene which zach is is something you wouldn't be necessarily familiar with but like every episode he has his uh imf dossier and like which has photos of all these different people and usually it goes, he picks out the four or five people that he always has on his team. And there's always a bunch of other photos that he tosses aside, including, what not Bruce Geller like one of the people usually in there? Yeah, he's like the first person that gets tossed aside. And he always found that <laughs> Bruce, to be yeah. really funny. Usually it's like Bruce Geller being the, the creator of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting dude, by the way. Not enough written about him. He like... A, he got fired off the show three seasons in because he went over budget. Right. Constantly, like, he'd have a vision for every shot of each episode that huh. often wouldn't fully come to fruition. But this is one of the ones he got, like, what, some more control over. Nice. But yeah. Well, so what I found interesting about this, um, about this particular apartment scene was that 
they don't go through the usual exercise where you ha- or where he like picks out cinnamon and Barney and all the characters that you know. In, and this is only the third episode. He just like the only one who of the usual players who's not you know out on the table already is Roland Hand. Yeah, which is uh, is interesting, but it also lends itself to the unique structure of this episode. Yeah, that's true. The, these first season episodes tend to fall in a couple of basic templates and you can know mm-hmm. a few minutes in what template you're doing and this is one of those where they're like no we're not really going to explain the plan we're not really going to explain who's involved you're going to mm-hmm. figure that as it goes along just go right there's a decent chunk of them that are like that where you the audience member are having to figure out the con as the people who are getting in on it are right this one is specifically unique because it follows the villain throughout most of it. That's true. Well, so for our listeners' sakes, if they haven't seen the show, let's go through all the different players that we usually have. So obviously we have Dan Briggs as the team leader, and then we'll have Roland Hand as doing disguises. Specifically guest starring Martin Landau as Roland oh, right. Hand. Because even though he is arguably the main character of the first season, he isn't actually a regular cast member until season two. Oh, wow. Did not know that. Yeah. Uh, so Bar- Barney Collier is like your tech guy. He's basically your your Luthor Stickle of the original series. Exactly. Cinnamon Carter is your actress, so she plays any female roles that need to be there. She's the honeypot. Yeah. yeah. And then Willie Armitage is what the muscle. Pretty much. Yeah. Peter Lupus is not in too much of the show mm-hmm. throughout the full run, but he doesn't tend to do much beyond being right. Tough. Like the first episode, his role is like to carry the big heavy case that Dan Briggs is hiding in, isn't it? Yeah, he's basically their production assistant. Yeah. Like he just does whatever uh, random stuff it needs doing. <laughs> he's a goon. Yeah, kind of. But on the good side, yeah. <laughs> Other people who were in the um, in the dossier who are used are let's see, Ira Green, MD, Sonny Allison, who's a daredevil driver, and the Horizon Repertory players who. Like actors? Wait, is that what that was? These from the files? Yeah, I've like like slowed it down. It's uh, there. Yeah, you yeah. can see they barely see their names, and I pulled it. Yeah. Okay. This is established in this episode that they actually have a ton of actors at their disposal, and this <laughs> this sort of template of like creating a whole like different environment to convince somebody it's like a different year mm-hmm. or it's a. Uh, past the nuclear apocalypse, which they do later on in the show. Um, I can't wait. That it's a dream where Rollin Hand is Adolf Hitler killing this dude's wife. Like, they get a I'm ton sorry, of actors. what? Yeah, I'm not even fucking around. I mean, there is an episode of the 80s Mission Impossible where they have to convince a guy who is a Satanist that Peter Graves is the devil and every member of the IMF, including a ton of actors, are cult members slash demons. They did something similar to that in Burn Notice. Really? I'd have have to remember that Burn Notice episode. I don't. Michael was like, I'm El Diablo, and I have satanic powers. Oh, I do remember that episode. Oh, I love Burn Notice. Uh, That is another good show. Uh, So let's get into the the happening. So we have a man who we find out is Rogosh exiting the hotel with another person who is... I have his name written down later oh, on because he comes back. Lazlov, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So they're looking around. They see a lot of people following them. There's like one guy who's climbing down a fire escape to try to follow them. Rogosh is crossing the street. He gets hit by a car. Yes. And this reminds me of the climax 
of the city on the edge of forever when Edith Keeler gets hit by the car. Because the two guys are like, oh no, oh no, what are you uh, gonna do? The other guy man. is like, I could have saved her, Jim. I could have saved her. <laughs> so uh, the person driving the car is the aforementioned Sonny, I don't remember his last name, who's a daredevil driver. But we don't like we didn't really get a good look at Sonny. He's not really a member of the team. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think we mentioned him when we brought up the team in our actual episode no, on Rogue. <laughs> but I'm just like, didn't. yeah, if you don't know, it wasn't until I noticed, what's his name, Barn, he's like, oh, I see. Paramedics, the cops, everyone is IMF. Okay. Because oh. I just recognized uh, Philip Morris. I was like, oh, just, okay. Just to sort of bring it up, because this is the moment where the, the two Mission Impossibles collide. Uh, mm-hmm. The sequence getting hit by the car and convincing mm-hmm. somebody it is the future is used in Mission Impossible Fallout to great effect. And even yep. Corey was like, yeah, this was a throwback to Rogosh. Nice. Yeah. I also and- did pick up on that, but it wasn't as extreme and thus much more plausible in the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it wasn't three years later or whatever. It was no, like it was like a few mo- or a month or a week. Yeah, Something like, like that, I don't yeah. remember. There's yes. an episode that is essentially this later on in like season maybe three, where uh, this guy who you know has nuclear bombs is convinced that it is the year two thousand and the bombs have gone off, and he's living in a prison with this oh guy. Oh my gosh! Played by Martin Landau, and yeah. It's it's goofy, what's, but yeah, proceed with uh, this episode. I was gonna say, what's funny is that within five episodes, they flat out go, "Yeah, ghosts are kind of real," and acknowledge them, <laughs> and they might kill someone in the episode. And so uh, for me, I'm like, "Oh, no, no, the, this is kind of normal. This isn't that big a deal." Sure, they convince <laughs> someone that that it's three years later and that they change completely in this time. Well, that reminds me, we were talking earlier about the Rock. Because uh, we were talking about Sean Connery related, who at the time we were recording it recently passed. And do you remember how in The Rock they're like, oh, by the way, there are aliens. Aliens exist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Want to know what really happened at the Roswell? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Great film. And, and who, who really killed JFK? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it has that great uh, that great ending line. Almost, it almost reminds me of like The Graduate, or uh, you know, all the great iconic endings where Nicolas Cage finally gets his national treasure stuff. He's like, "Honey, you really want to know who killed JFK?" Well, they have. I was JFK. gonna say that just reminds me of National <laughs> Treasure too. Front pew. Okay, all right. Away. I'm sorry for getting us on Nicolas Cage movies. All right, all right. Let's get let's get back to the show. All right, so. <laughs> They bring Rogash into an ambulance, and so you don't get a lot of the actual Mission Impossible theme in this episode. You get the B theme, the plot. Yes. A lot, which I, I love that theme. And I think we've talked about it on our show before that the first Mission Impossible is what really got me into Spies. And so I had that soundtrack, so I would, and I like watched that movie over and over. So I knew that theme, even though I didn't know it was the plot theme. And I was like, oh, that's that other song. The original Mission Impossible theme, just so you guys know. That's actually what Lalo Schifrin considers to be the theme for the team, which makes sense. And oh, okay. has been used more and more often in the movies, especially in Fallout. Right. But yeah, great theme. The Doctor. So I assume that this is the Doctor that there was in the portfolio. They go so fast, so I don't actually remember what they all looked like. I'm just going to assume there was that Doctor. Injects him with something that'll keep him out for a few hours. When he got hit by the car, well, I guess Sonny was a daredevil stunt driver, so he knows, knows how to hit a guy with a car 
without breaking any bones. <laughs> surgical. Yeah. He's a surgical son. The doctor says, yeah, no broken bones, but there are bruisings. But the bruising will also leave the same kind of marks that would be if he had been, like, heavily beaten. Which is... <laughs> Honestly, I'd buy that. <laughs> hear that and i want to go wait what no but i'm like i guess sure you bounce someone off a car it's gonna look like they got beat up i mean of the things that are implausible in this that is one of the least implausible so rogash wakes up in a cell there are manacles hanging on the wall it's a very small cell although it looks like it's bigger than my first like room in dc i saw that room it was small it looks like something from like the stasi president in berlin Mm-hmm. And the yeah. ceilings are really high, so he looks up. That was, that was the other. It's thing. like a thirty-foot yeah. high ceiling. Then he looks down, and then a rat lands on his shoulder. So I'm like, <laughs> was that rat like in midair when he looks up at it? And how high? <laughs> how high up when they threw it down on it? I mean, and then there's, is it the same, same rat or a different rat that's on the lamp? I presume it was the same rat. I gotta oh, say, yeah. I do love the the high angle shots of him in the prison and looking above. It's a lot more cinematic than you expect out of this era of television. Yeah, definitely. Weird camera angles. What you'll get is, you know, the 60s Batman where, oh, all the villains are off on Dutch angles, but not anything like this. For a show of this era, the Mission Impossible series, it continuously has pretty great cinematography. Like, there are some episodes where you can, like, okay, this is a filler episode. They didn't care. Or this is an episode where they, like, had to restructure the entire thing because they didn't have their main character. And those are a little wonky. But whenever they have, like, a, no, no, we recorded everything we intended to episode, it looks (laughs) great consistently. And you think this is one of those? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Oh, definitely. There are a lot of cool transitions in this episode. One I really like is the hand in the ambulance falling mm-hmm. down the stretcher that leads to him. That was prison. good. There's a really interesting transition later on that we can talk about where Dan Briggs is uh, talking to Rogush. Rogush looks like concerned about the That's child. Right. Right of him and sees Dan Briggs in another chair, which threw me for a loop because I didn't notice that the yeah. first time we had covered it, and I was just like, "Wow, this is like weirdly artsy for mm-hmm. '60s TV." Definitely above and beyond what you'd need yeah. for just the oh, plot yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so he's in his cell. He looks through the keyhole out of the cell and sees all, all these other cells. He tries to call for help. No one responds. This is where I noticed, oh, he's wearing a tuxedo now, not like the blue suit that he was wearing before. And he starts looking through the tuxedo jacket for anything. He finds a bunch of cigarettes, a wallet with a bunch of foreign bills, some coins, and a card that says John Lopek. And then a photo of a woman who is Cinnamon Carter. The lovely Barbara Bain. Yes, I didn't really recognize her from the picture, but... <laughs> didn't look like usual. Well, I mean, I, usually when you see that photo of Cinnamon Carter in the show, it's like that one headshot she has that's always in the binder. So when I saw it, I was like think that's cinnamon carter but i'm not quite sure she looks very different also i think I love... she's smiling in the picture and she never smiles during this episode <laughs> that's true yeah. i love that uh he sees that picture and wakes up like that and like of all the unbelievable things he's like oh yeah i could score that <laughs> 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 so he goes he tries to climb up to the very high window by using the manacles that are hanging and then he starts like looking around the floor dusting off one of the bricks which says the word Stefan, which we don't find out till later, but we're just going to say it now that it, it's the name of a prison in whatever his home country is. I Googled this. I was like, oh? is this a real place? I Googled Stefan Castle. It's from Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. King Stefan's Castle is the first result That's of Stefan's Castle. Right, because the 
father is Stefan. I wow, is I would not have thought about that. <laughs> I'm not expecting that. Oh, All throughout the show to to keep from uh, like getting political or starting to like you know mm-hmm. offend other countries playing this, they do a lot of fake countries of sort of like there would be like weird like emergency or some shit like to uh-huh. emergency like weird language stuff. We often <laughs> in the show refer to it as not Russia, not Germany, or uh-huh. not Cuba. Mm-hmm. Later on in the run, they tend to do like actual Russia or actual mm. Nazis. Interesting. But... I think there's only been one time in this first season where they've flat out gone like, no, no, this is a real country. This is a real place. The languages and everything matches. Uh, yeah, it's always a fake country. And, and also, <laughs> it's always a fake country where the leader of that country engages in like petty day to day business. So even though they're like the <laughs> prime minister, Really, they're just like a banker. <laughs> Looks around the cell and sees like other people's names written in the cell. And someone has a carved 1968, but in Roman numerals for some reason. Yeah. Which, okay, the only reason I can think of is that, oh, it's easier to like carve like the straight lines into stone than it is to like actually carve like a nine and a six or, or an eight in the, into it, like certain rounded numbers. I don't know. I'm, I'm almost willing to guarantee you that is exactly why that exists. Is there was some production uh-huh. designer trying to carve 1968 into that, just going, <laughs> I can't fucking do it, man. We're just doing uh-huh. Roman numerals and deal with it. Carving it um, into a stone just reminded me of the, uh, what was it, 2000 it something? It, no, it's the no. Count of Monte Cristo, <laughs> oh. the 19 or the 2000, what, two ish? Mm. Or, I was like, somehow he was able to carve the words like, like, only God will judge me into stone. So it seems to be possible. Yeah, it reminded me of the Monty Python. Was it Monty Python? Where he's like, he would have to chisel. Blah. Oh, that's right. Yes. That is. That's it reminded reference. me of uh, that classic 80s film, uh, The Count of Monty Python. Ah, <laughs> uh, there we go. Oh, we're actually thinking of the same movie, as it turns out. Yes, there you go. Oh, man, I, I want to uh, see Where were we? Oh, he sees a guard, tries to get the guard to tell him how long he's been there. And he also starts to hear a woman screaming. And as this is happening, we pan over to the IMF team in another room. And Barney's using a record player and a tape player and a bunch of tech to project the sounds of screaming. Cinnamon is over there (laughs) picking clothes off a clothes rack. I like that they have like a coat rack that Uh they actually use it. It's like you'd think they're British with their like cleanliness. They don't just throw their coats wherever. This is an interesting <laughs> detail. So this yeah. part reminded me of V for Vendetta, the fake prison in that. To like oh, break. I didn't even Natalie think about Horton. that. You're right. That's like a pull. And yeah. this movie also has like an interesting question of like, because this guy is a ticking bomb terrorist. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard that term before? So right. like when torture was like a big hot button political issue, now we sort of know that it doesn't work. You're better off making friends with the guy. That's shown to be more effective. But what if you only have like 24 hours and you have a terrorist and you know the bomb's going to go off in 24 hours? Some people think it might be morally justifiable to torture in a situation like that. But no one knows whether it would work because it's such a specific situation. Has the modern intelligence agencies tried to like tell them it's three years in the future? Not as far as I'm aware. (laughs) Well, what's interesting about it, and I'm not sure if this is fully mentioned, so the accusation that's being leveled against Rogosh in this is that he is an American spy. And he's trying to prove his allegiance 
to a ton of American spies, <laughs> which kills me. It's such a mind yep. fuck. I absolutely adore mm-hmm. that. Well, dramatic irony. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so Rogash in, finds a bug in the lamp, and he's like shouting, "This is this is a mistake. I shouldn't be a prisoner." And then Briggs, or, or no, I think it's Barney tells Briggs that or Dan that Dan Briggs that he found the bug, and he's like, "Good." He's like, oh, okay. So this is going according to plan. It's not like, "Oh, he found the bug. Now we're screwed." Right. There's a cool improvisational aspect to this. They don't know what this uh, weapon is that Rogash has. You know, they're just sort of improving on the spot. And that's really what I enjoy about, like, my favorite episodes of Mission Impossible tend to have a lot of improvisation. Mm-hmm. Because the main character of this episode is the villain, you don't actually get to see the improvisation, even though it's there. So it, it's why I really like this episode is, is you're just dealing with the effects. Like, oh, shit, no, no. Is that a big issue that he found the bug? We don't know. Maybe, maybe. Oh, no, no. It's cool. It's cool. And that continues to happen throughout. Every time they do a reveal, because we're focusing on Rogosh as the character, we never know when the team is actually in trouble versus when it's all mm-hmm. going to plan. Right, right. That's definitely true. So outside the window of his cell, Rogosh can see that they're building a gallows. And then we go, go to Briggs walking around. He's seeing people like working on construction projects around. There's a giant portrait of someone. And this is like my question about who, okay. So we know who the actors are. Like all the other bit players are actors. Who are these construct- contractors? Like who's doing this like construction work? Uh, they're, the, they're the set people. Like they, they have to put <laughs> together stuff for uh, all these different productions. And uh, they just no, I, got done no. working on all Sleeping right. Beauty. You answered your own question earlier when you were going through the mission briefs. These are the repertory players, you know? Okay. <laughs> all, all the random, like, bit part extras that the IMF needs mm-hmm. to fill this out. You know, they get day rates, like, you know, at the time, probably like 20 So they're bucks both a day. actors and set builders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a weird organization, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the 60s took a lot of drugs. Well, it's interesting because you're used to seeing five people. We're actually, mm-hmm. we're used to seeing like one spy or maybe a small team, but mm-hmm. not a small army of people with right. all these resources. So it's definitely different. Well, that army of people are not trained as spies. <laughs> that is one of the weird things about this. Set. It, it keeps getting bigger. A lot of the Mission Impossible episodes tend to be, here's this one little team. And yes, they often are gaslighting somebody like they are in this, but they're always infiltrating something or doing this or tweaking this like uh, under the radar. This is one of the rare few examples where it's like, no, no, everybody involved, you see, is all a member of the IMF. Like the entirety of the IMF rocked out for this one mission. Rogash from his cell sees Cinnamon being brought somewhere by a female guard. Willie comes to go get Rogash, says the prosecutor wants to see you again. He's like, again? Here, uh, as he's being brought, we hear a woman, presumably Cinnamon, crying out. Mm-hmm. There's a guard who's listening to the radio, and there's announcements of a new prime minister of whatever country Rogash is from, who's Emil Hadvani, and that Colonel Klimi, who is a special intelligence director who has been arrested along with a bunch of other people. Also, apparently, there's a new U.S. president, and their you know Olympics records are being broken, and of course, all of this is just Barney making announcements on a shortwave radio. To hilarious effect for me, I love when people are gaslit by radio recordings. 
I just like Barney getting to do something. Yeah. As forward thinking as Mission Impossible tends to be with its handling of race and sex uh, discrimination, it's still a black guy in the 60s. Uh, so like he doesn't really doesn't get to speak as much as he normally would in, an, in another show made more often, but he still manages to be one of the most useful people in every episode he's in. Right. Everybody's got a job to do. Yeah, yeah definitely. So also as they're walking around the grounds of the fake prison, they're like testing out the gallows with sandbags. That's a real thing. They literally would, they either test it or there's a math formula that is used to determine how much rope you should give to make sure somebody drops far enough that their neck breaks, but doesn't hit the ground. Because, you know, when when you get hung, your neck breaks and that's how you die. Uh, Or else it takes like minutes. And I was just watching, it was a special on this guy who has had a few movies made about him, who was Britain's head hangman. And he hung oh. like 450 people over the course of his career because he, he was their hangman during the Nuremberg trials. So any Nazis oh. who were sentenced to death, he killed. And by the end of his career, he ended up being a staunch anti-death penalty advocate. During the course of this, he used to go into that much detail of how long does the rope have to be because this person is six feet tall instead of five feet eight. And that's enough to make a difference. Now you know. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. The last podcast on the left did uh, a thing about executioners, which if Uh you're familiar with that, it's like horror and comedy. And there's a bunch of ridiculous stories. And one of them, there was a executioner who was a very like sensitive guy. And one time when it like something went wrong like i I think he like pulled the lever and it didn't work or something so he started like crying and the person who's supposed to execute was like it's okay buddy it's okay (laughs) (laughs) truth is is very strange sometimes yeah yeah that is reminds me of that one executioner who was supposed to kill buckbeak in uh prisoner of azkaban oh slicing a pumpkin (laughs) hey you know what? Dude came out to cut something. He's gonna cut something. There you go. Exactly. It's like a samurai sword. You don't put it back until there's blood. <laughs> <laughs> or pumpkins. Alright, so over in the prosecutor's office we find out where that giant, giant portrait was going, and apparently that's the, a portrait of the new prime minister. Roland Hand is playing the prosecutor. Rogosh is the many know why he's here. Hand says that Colonel Clemmy is implicated already, but he needs a confession from them. And starts like giving him like you know what did you do with this and that? He's like I don't know I don't remember any of this. We find out that Colonel Clemmy, when Rogash knew him, so in you know real time, is just a major and he was the intelligence attaché in L.A. Um, but Han doesn't know you haven't been L.A. in three years. It's 1969. <laughs> this is the point where we get that confirmed that how like what the timeline is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, we should sort of just backtrack a little bit just to say everybody's roles. So Dan Briggs oh, yeah. is playing the role of Rogish's incompetent uh, <laughs> lawyer, which is Defense great. Attorney, it's, yeah. it's one of uh, my favorite uses of Stephen Hill so far because he is a guy who is very, very flat throughout most of the show. Mm-hmm. But when he's given the chance to play a character like a drunkard or an incompetent mm-hmm. lawyer, he sings. And then the other super confident, suave uh, opposing counsel is supposed to be Rollin Hand, who mm-hmm. is like the attorney that you would absolutely adore having. And then uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Willie, Peter Lupus, Willie Armitage yeah. is just a security guard as right. usual. Yes, he is. Yeah. Slash heavy. Yeah. And then Cinnamon, I guess since we'll go through this, she's also she plays Rogosh's secretary slash lover. <laughs> yes. The person who you're constantly hearing screaming over the radio. Rogosh says, no, I, I don't remember anything. I was in a car accident. I was with Laszlov. And as he's saying, as he's saying this, Roland Hans tells Dr. Zoltan to come in. And hold on. I know I have the actual doctor's name written down earlier. Ira Green. So Dr. Green. Can I just say, we have recorded episodes of this three times in a row because we had recording issues. And this is the most thoroughly oh, we've ever covered Rogish. So... <laughs> This feels like the final nail in the coffin of an episode that I love. So hopefully you'll never have to talk about it again on a podcast. (laughs) I'll probably talk about it, but it's yeah. I'm sure that we'll end up doing another episode on it somehow. (laughs) The doctor claims that he, you know, he's been friends with Rogosh since he was arrested at a state reception, which, all right. So this doctor is just flat out lying to him. He's okay with that. I I presume the doctor is another agent. Just like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, he is. But I'm just like, still, that just seems a little shady for a doctor. I don't know. Roland Hand asks the doctor if, you know, this sort of me- type of memory loss is possible. And he's like, yes, delayed amnesia. Sure, it's definitely a thing. Delayed amnesia does not sound real. <laughs> <laughs> this is not new to the show by any means outside of here. I'm sorry. I think I may have just saw a murder hornet outside the oh, <laughs> window. That was the biggest bee I've ever seen. This is not new (laughs) to the Mission Impossible team to use a doctor who will say whatever diagnosis that they need. I believe the Trump administration used them from time to time. I wasn't going for the Trump burn, but I just went in there. It just happened. It's going to happen. You can join the cast of SNL. (laughs) (laughs) So Briggs and his his team are over back in the office. And they say, okay, just let him keep digging and finding information. Don't be proactive. Just let him try to find it. We're going to get more information out of him that way. But they don't know how much time they have. And so Briggs is going to meet him as the defense attorney. And he says he wants to inspire a complete lack of confidence. One of my favorite moments of this entire episode. Because you you don't get too many moments, and this is by design, where the characters mm-hmm. interact in a way where they're not talking about the mission directly or, you know. So what you do get for, like, character moments are usually members of the team giving each other shit. And I love Barbara Bain just saying, if I was going up for trial for my life, I would not want you to represent me. And him <laughs> affecting that yeah. hunch is so funny to me. The stuff about how they only talk about the plot because it's a TV show and it's all about the plot, is, it runs through, like, Law & Order where we don't really know about the detectives very well, except occasionally we have stuff like, I'll take care of it once I pick up my daughter from her new boyfriend's house. What? She's dating? I know, I can't believe it. Yeah, they, they never get into that territory ever. I mean, occasionally you'll get what, uh, what I would call an off-books mission, where it will be like a mob boss will be haranguing Dan Briggs and be like, we're kidnapping your friend's daughter. But you never get like... Oh, I remember when I met him back in Sunday school or some <laughs> bullshit. Like, it, you never get that. It's just, it's all the mission. Right. While this is all going on, we see someone outside of the grounds hidden in the brush with binoculars. And I think this is, we find out later that this is Laszlo. Because, but I just didn't recognize him because there's so many just white dudes in here. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. 
Oh, totally. And yeah. you think they'd you think they'd be trying to find Laszlo because earlier when he's like, "Go ask Laszlo about the mission," they didn't know about that, but apparently they don't do anything with it. They got well, all their team we, just yeah. trying to make this Sleeping Beauty prison. So I mean, what are you, what are you gonna do? The the connection of uh, him being asleep for three years or whatever. Whoa! What? I just got that too. What? <laughs> Could be. Hold up. When did, did Sleeping they... Beauty come out though? Like the Disney movie? It definitely yeah. came like the out 40s. in the 50s. 50s, right? Okay, before. it is before this, so that makes I just wanted to make sure it's like. Not somehow the other way around. Okay. Rogosh back in his cell, peeping through the window. Sleeping Beauty came out in 1959. So five years before this. Probably called four and a half when they recorded it. So like, yeah, it was relevant. That makes sense. It was in the culture. It could be a coincidence. (laughs) Coincidence? I think not. Rogosh is back in his cell. Again, climbing up those manacles to see up the window. He must have gotten a lot of exercise doing that every single time. Because, like, every time we see him, he's up at that window. And it seems like he's just hanging there for a while. But as he's up there, he sees Colonel Klimmy being walked across the yard. And he tries to call out for him, but he doesn't see Rogosh and doesn't listen and doesn't respond. Dan Briggs goes into Rogosh's cell and basically tells him that, you know, I can't get in touch with anyone. I'm a bad lawyer, so I can't help you in any way. And he says that Lasloff was shot last week. And he did his best to represent Lasloff, but clearly things didn't work out well for him. Right. That's one of my favorite moments where he's like, I love that the stakes getting higher for him is like, yeah, I tried my best for your friend, but I, I couldn't really do much. <laughs> and he's just like, give me the fuck away from this attorney. Like, just find me somebody. So that's interesting because it reminds me of like the spy who came in from the cold. Mm-hmm. Where with, with these communist societies, if you're accused, you're basically dead. Like, yep. you're not going to have a trial. There's all, The trial is almost besides the point. That's also why they love confessions. So I kind of feel like Rogosh, it's weird that he still feels like he kind of has a chance to talk his way out of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It well, feels, he it loves feels his country. That's the up. whole thing. That's true. Uh, yeah. He's and I think it. you're kind of approaching this moment, but Barney is plays the role of a prisoner at one point. And basically is like, this whole country's a damn prison, except in a Jamaican accent that I'm not even going to attempt. And it leads to Rogush like getting actually fucking upset at him. He's like, shut up. That's a good point. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. National. <laughs> so he gets into a car. Major Klimmy's inside the car, asks if Rogosh was there. And he reports that this house has been converted to look like Stefan Castle. So, so they're working together. Which is the, which is at the only point where we find out that like this is supposed to look like an actual place. It's not just a random like prison castle. And uh, Colonel Klimi is like, "I want you to find Rogosh and and rescue him, sir." No, kill him. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> so Rogosh is back in his cell with Briggs, and he's telling him more information about what he remembers. He says, "You know, I bought tickets to leave on November second because on November 4th. Briggs doesn't try to push him on that. It's like when he starts on November fourth. Like, he just, like, actually talks about something else. Say, like, what about information about more recent events? It's like, oh, he doesn't try to push it, doesn't try to say, oh, doesn't lead him too much. Yeah, what you're getting to, Christian, is one of the strengths mm-hmm. of this episode because it really doesn't feel like they're trying to push him one way or the other. Mm-mm. Like, sometimes he'll be saying details that are kind of important. They'll interrupt him. Like, especially <laughs> with the opposing counsel where he's like, I planted the bombs and he's just, or I planted the, the 
the virus rest. And he's like, all right, the defense rests. <laughs> Worth noting, 1966 was an election year, although it did happen on November 8th. In my head, I'm going, Man. was this the writers making a dig at leaving the country because of the election? <laughs> was that a thing back then? Uh, it was, it was during I Lyndon B. Johnson's um, second Yeah, term. and we will talk more about that in our Spy Fact versus Spy Fiction section Ooh. segment. Nice. Then I will yes. shut up. <laughs> he starts eyeing the light as if like he knows that the thing is bugged and so says, I can't defend you, I'll keep defending you, they might try to arrest me for this, and he punches out Briggs, and then Willie comes to go get him, and Briggs goes back to the office. And they reveal, yeah, today is November 2nd, so they have two days to figure out what's going on. Also, like, who was it? Barney? or some, One of them is like, I admire the restraint you had to, that you gave not to, like, punch him back. I think it was Barney, yeah. Act and lawyer. He's a lawyer <laughs> and he can fight. There you go. <laughs> well, th- that's a, a common thing with Briggs. So, like, Briggs, on most episodes, is just this straight-faced guy. Whenever he gets to shine and show his true self, He's always this like really weird, outlandish, goofy, just pathetic character. But he also, at the same time, will knock a motherfucker out at the drop of a hat. <laughs> just like for no reason. Be like, you know what? No, nah, I'm going to deck you now. The, it is a common thing. He has no temper or no ability to hold his temper at all. <laughs> he does that later in this weird. episode, right? Yeah, it yeah. does. The IMF mainly being like mind game agents. Mm-hmm. Dan Briggs being the lead of them is so incongruous. Him being just like, <laughs> all right, I know how to fix this. Does that change? I'm trying to remember, like, I've only seen a few episodes with Jim Phelps. I assume Jim Phelps is not in the same vein. He's more calculated, right? Very calculated. I mean, throughout it, they're like, he's a genius. He is essentially, I would say he is Ethan Hunt Rogue Nation level. Uh, okay. where He's trying mm-hmm. his best to think his way through problems. Right. Whereas... Dan Briggs seems more Ethan Hunt MI2. All right. Everything's going <laughs> gone to crap. Bring out the guns. Let's do this. I want Stephen Hill in a John Woo movie in an alternate universe. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Rogosh going for exercise time. So Willie, you know, take someone out of a cell, bring him over. And he passes Cinnamon in another cell and stops Willie saying, no, I want to talk to her and starts bribing Willie with the cash that he had in his pocket to let him talk and the female guard also like drags uh, cinnamon over and leaves him alone cinnamon says that she was beaten and that like she told him everything but they don't want to believe what she's saying and they wanted her to say that the rogash is working for the americans they just want to know about america nothing before or after but she doesn't really know what happened in america she wasn't there they met afterwards it makes sense because obviously he doesn't remember her all right so he starts asking, all right, what did I tell you about America? I, I like that he doesn't actually reveal he supposedly has amnesia to her. He's trying to play her while she's playing him. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, really cool moments of that where he's trying to fish for information that they don't even know. And it just really shows how competent <laughs> the team is. Well, also in this scene, is it's a really 60s female character who's like, oh no, please, I'm so scared, won't you save me? You know, that we've seen like a bunch of times in these old movies, but it's like being lampshaded or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's one of my issues with the character of Cinnamon. Like, okay. I think that Barbara Bain is a phenomenal actress, 
but I think that the writers don't necessarily do her justice because of the time that this came out and just the mores of the land because she is able to do so much and yet 90% of the time she's the honeypot. Like, like she's always the sex object or she's always the girlfriend. And it's, it's the same kind of relatively predictable character. Right. Even though you're like, oh, you could do so much more than that, honey, please. Let her off the hook. She was being that character, but she was playing that character as yes. like the actress. So at least there was a right. level to yeah. it there. Exactly. That's what I always have liked about her, which I'm not sure if you guys have this in your notes, but Barbara Bain won an Emmy every year that she played this character. Right. I did know I did Even know about that. Her last season of Mission Impossible, she got fired off of it because Martin Landau walked when the creator walked. Right. And when she accepted it, she was like, Well, I was one of the leads of Mission Impossible. Like Barbara Bain give no fucks. <laughs> Cinnamon tells Rogosh that, oh, I told them all the private things about all the operations we did together. I said, did you tell them about the, the cultures, the bacteria cultures? How many, how many died? Was I successful? And as this is happening, like you said, as, as this is something that we would want to know more about, Willie just pulls them away and is like, says, what's wrong with you? Because he, he's like shouting at Cinnamon to the point of like that Cinnamon you know, acting is that she's in tears. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, oh, hey, but again, it's that, that thing like, oh, this seems like something we need to know about. Let him let him talk longer. But no, they just pull him away because he's giving up information. This is actually, you know what this reminded me of? The Avengers where Black Widow's playing Loki. Yeah. Yes. To get that information okay. about what yeah. the plan is. I also thought maybe they thought they had didn't want to push their luck. It's, it's interesting to me that he's willing to say this to someone who he still doesn't know. Like, yeah, they tell him that they know, he knows her, but he didn't has never met her yeah what are you gonna do yeah also i noticed that willie had a very american accent when he's like what's wrong with you i was like all right what country (laughs) is supposed to be did they outsource their guards from america (laughs) yeah it's one of the uh the more nitpicky things about this that half the people in this foreign country are just all americans (laughs) that's true uh, yeah, so Rogosh gets brought back to his cell, and then in the office, Barney and Cinnamon are there, and then Barney gets his shirt ripped open by Briggs. Mm-hmm. Tells Willie, yeah, don't fake the beating. Nice. Yeah. Great manager. <laughs> <laughs> They'd say that he's a student agitator. Barney, at this point, is doing some sort of accent. I couldn't figure out what kind of accent it was, but it was some sort of it's accent. It's Jamaican. Is that what it was? Okay. He says that he was a student at UCLA. And of course, this gets Rogosh's attention. He says, oh, were you there in November 66? Oh, no, I didn't get there until January of 67. Oh, so you missed the epidemic. And that's when it's, wait, what now? <laughs> oh, yes, I missed it, but not the riots and martial law. Oh, panic lasted that long? Yes, demonstrating and looting. Wait a minute, what is it? What am I hearing now? Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly <laughs> relevant. <laughs> So what do you think was the idea behind telling him that his mission was successful? So he has that forefront to be like, hey, I set up this successful mission for you guys that dismantled America for like a year or whatever. Mm-hmm. It worked. He's comfortable telling people about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. If he was successful, if he wasn't successful, he wouldn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And he'd have yeah. nothing to say during this uh, this trial. <laughs> It, well, it, yeah, it, it, it gives him something. 
it gives him something to prove he is indeed a loyal citizen with because here he is responsible for the deaths of thousands of Americans and all this chaos. And like, no, see, I did this. I am trustworthy. I, I thought he was going to be like, Oh, you were at UCLA. Did I like know you? And I was like, <laughs> Los Angeles is a big city. And it reminds me of that mystery science theater joke. We're from up North. Oh, do you know, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but so while this is happening, Lasloff is outside on a roof. Oh, wait, no. I skipped ahead. Lasloff is sneaking around, and we're not sure what he's doing, but we see that he got into the castle. And Roland Hand gets disguised as Colonel Klimmy, and they hang him. Yeah, but they don't hang it on screen. Like, it doesn't happen on camera. That's true. Now, you see him with, like, getting the hood put over his head and the thing, and I guess you just, I'm trying to remember, you just see Rogosh's reaction, right? Yeah, I wonder if it was 60s censorship. Probably. It is 60s censorship. Uh, I remember there's, there's a great example of the censorship in uh, Batman the Animated Series, where there is an incredible episode, it's like a what-if episode, where... Oh, oh. Uh, Batgirl is thrown off of a building by Scarecrow, and they're like, well, we can't watch her have that full fall. So they decide uh-huh. the best way for censorship to have it happen is to just show a POV from her father's car as the body lands in front of him. <laughs> and it makes it even worse. Yeah. yeah. It's like... That is a great episode. That's uh, over the edge. <laughs> yeah, it's a great episode. Yeah. So I actually also thought of Batman the Animated Series because in that same, I think that same episode, I watched the commentary of the creators and they talked mm-hmm. about that, Nathan mentioned, but also they're like, oh my gosh, is that like a, a, a coffin and a hearse in like a children's cartoon? <laughs> Man, we did get away with a lot back then. Uh, yeah. Censorship is weird. I mean, if you've ever seen the show Hannibal, there is mm-hmm. a moment where there are these blood angels where they have like their Just watch that episode. Are- yeah, oh, show. are ripped out of the back to resemble oh. angel wings, and it's grotesque. And they talk uh-huh. to the NBC censors, and they're like, "Hey, we this angel scene can't fly." And they're like, "Well, what do we do instead of angels?" He's like, "No, no, the angel wings are fine. Just uh, we see too much of a bare ass crack from them." <laughs> like, well, what do you suggest that we do? And they're like, "We'll just throw some more blood on it." <laughs> oh my god! Conversely. There is an episode that either I, I can't remember if it flat out didn't air, or if they aired the it. And then, yeah. Was it the? I, I was thinking of uh, when the kids are the killers because people yep. freaked out so much at the idea of children being the killers. They were just like, "No, we're not going to air this." And like, it didn't it would, air, and then they aired like a twenty-minute like mini episode that was on yeah. NBC. I was a I was a huge fan of that show. But yeah, talking about a different show. <laughs> it's okay it's okay yeah so rogan sees the hanging from his cell and he calls for the defense attorney and says that i've got two witnesses that can attest to what happened to america so they call this like emergency trial tribunal thing and we get roland hand again acting as the prosecutor and says that rogash was a double agent briggs as the defense attorney denies all the charges and he says that there are secret operations that prove he was a loyal agent but the court and the just judges were not able to find any files related to these operations. So they call Cinnamon to the stand. And Cinnamon, like, she's very subdued. She's acting like she's been beaten and that she has to tell, you know, tell them exactly what they want to know. Says that, you know, no, Rogosh and Klimi were part of a group that is pledged to destroy their government. 
And as this is going on, Laszlo's outside on the rooftop, and he's like getting out a rifle. Rogash is trying to get them to ask about the secret operations that he says that he and Cinnamon carried out. But of course, he doesn't know anything about these because he only knows what Cinnamon told him. She denies knowing anything. Yeah, basically, her and this friend both betray Rogash. Yep. This is a weird scene for me. Okay. Because when we actually covered this, it ended up getting a lot of play because a lot of the people on that episode really liked it. I have a lot of weird problems with this scene because it's this—it's this, it's this entire right. trial, right? And so, <laughs> I get the idea of the trial going on and everything happening with Laszlo or La- Laszlo, mm-hmm. Laszlo, Laszlo. Uh, yeah, that's tense and that's great, and and, and I mm-hmm. like it, and, and I even like the idea on paper of them faking this trial to trick him into finally giving up all of the um, all of the information. And as it gets into the end of the scene and, and the twists that I don't want to spoil before you get to it, uh, like I start to get a little <laughs> more into it. But there's this whole section of this trial where they're just like going through the motions of a trial. And we as the audience right. know that everyone on the tribunal is IMF. Like the only person involved is Rogosh. And so as they're going through all those motions, it's just, okay, God, this, this isn't real. Can we just, can we just skip ahead? Like, just I, I, move it on. I, I move get it where on. you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lesser actor, the guy who played Rogosh. There's like an actual tension to how much he's going to say to try and prove his innocence, and watching his reactions make those scenes worthwhile. But your your points yeah. are still valid. I I appreciate your your opinion about the best episode <laughs> of Mission Impossible. I thought it was gonna be like, okay, this this like again, this was gonna be one of those things, things where all right, every, oh sure, everything else doesn't stretch reality to me, but this is like. They're able to assemble a trial that quickly and like get these judges. Like that's where my mind was at. Well, if it's a show trial, which it should be, because it's a communist country, then yeah, it's of course. True. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that it happens in a place with windows. How many courtrooms do you know have windows where someone with a rifle can look right into it? I was wondering about that too. You're not from not Russia. You don't know what their civilian <laughs> architecture is like. They like natural light. Okay, we just got a deal. They like it being very sunny when someone's about to be in prison. Like, <laughs> yeah, but I, that was my other thing. Is like, wait, why are they holding this tribunal in the prison? If this was a real tribunal, wouldn't they hold it somewhere else? Like, I'm sure they have very fancy buildings, like we saw in the man who came in from the, the spy who came in from the cold. They have very dedicated rooms for this sort of thing. Like, if this was a real trip, so this is like this is what was my issue with it. I was like. I've let I've let everything else go, but this is the thing that I was like stuck on for some reason. Oh, I, I was too. It's legit, and, and Nathan has a point though that it, yeah. it is a testament to the actor who mm-hmm. plays Rogosh that he takes this really ludicrous scene, <laughs> and it, it ends up being where he finally realizes that that the game has been on and he's been manipulated the entire time, and that transition of him going, no, 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 wait a minute holy shit, you got me, guys, is a great sequence. Like it, it, For all that I have issues with this, that is a phenomenal character turn, and he does a great job at it. Yeah, but before that, let's go to Laszlo. Briggs is right about to call Barney to the stand, and he sees Laszlo like, across the way with the rifle. Very obvious, <laughs> Laszlo, not a great assassin, because he's like right in plain view. Come on. I wonder how he was planning on getting out again. Once he shoots him. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But so Briggs, like, starts rambling. Well, first he tells 
uh, like he tells Willie, oh, you know, there's a gun across across in the stairwell, and, you know, deal with it. And then he starts rambling to the judges, who I guess are IMF and should have been clued in to the fact that, I, I don't know, there's some good improvisation yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it's the repertory like, players. Yeah. I actually had the same thought that it's like, okay, this guy's our boss and he wants to keep talking. So let's just defer to him and let him keep talking. Cause but if you boss. were an actual jury or not jury, actual judges or a tribunal, would you let some rambling, you would know, sn- snively defense attorney just keep rambling or would you shut him up? Well, what's more important, staying in character or the mission? It's not staying in character. <laughs> I'm just yeah. really glad you have just as many issues with the scene as I did. Because, like, when yeah, we no, covered I mean, this episode, I, li- I was yeah. here going, this is driving me crazy. <laughs> this makes no sense. And everybody else on the podcast were like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is the best scene in the episode. Uh, like Nathan said, like, I appreciated the acting there. But there was just things, this doesn't make sense to me a little bit. But I'm okay going with it. Because it doesn't, thankfully, his, like, rambling doesn't last too long. It lasts long enough that you see Willie take out the guy with what looks like a judo chop. This reminded me of the part in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, when Scotty uh, stops the Klingon assassin with the rifle from killing <laughs> the president of the Federation. This does have a very similar feel to that. I will say, yeah. just... Since we keep bringing up Star Trek, both these shows aired at the same time and often <coughs> used a lot of the same sets and guest stars by CBS. By Desilu Studios. And, I want to say yes. they literally shot like next door to each other. Like, like they had yeah. lunch yeah. together at Crafty. And there's an episode <coughs> that is uh, Aaron's favorite of this season called The Carriers that has George Takei in it. And it is Ooh. incredible. You guys would. Oh, uh, we should have watched that one. <laughs> you can watch George Takei attempt to dance in a nightclub where nobody else in the nightclub is actually trying to like maintain this illusion. So it's just a bunch of people sitting around having a very serious conversation where oh, George boy. Takei is doing this like little shoulder wiggle, which you, you, for the listeners, you can't see the actual video, but I'm doing it. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. Oh, it's wonderful. Man. Laszlov gets taken out by Willie. Dan calls Barney up to stand. Barney says that Rogosh implied he wanted to defect to LA when they were talking, which of course Rogosh is like, no, this is ridiculous. And this is what, this apparently was the straw that broke the camel's back. And like he starts saying that he wanted to find out if my, the results of my operation, and he starts giving the details, infect an entire city's water supply. You know, there's botulinum cultures with deadly strands of bacteria in four flasks in strategic locations, and they have a timing mechanism that breaks down the bottles. Starts giving details of all of the locations, and he's like saying the first, the second, the third. But as he's about, he's like going to say, "Ah, oh, let me draw you a map," and he goes to grab a piece of paper, which is underneath his the chair he was sitting in. And as he knocks over the chair, underneath the chair. Label from Southland Furniture Rental, L.A. And this is where that turn that we talked about happens. You start to figure out that it was all fake all, all along. He's still in America. And I like this part, the fact that he realizes that Dan is the leader because he was the most sniveling guy. It's so I love that quote. Great. It's such a great quote. Which yeah. I think it's, uh, I had it up. It's like, um, like you're, you're the most incompetent. Clearly, you are the leader. <laughs> or you, it's you the most ineffective you would be the leader that's true yeah it's interesting the range of emotions for him because he's mm-hmm. like surprised that he has been tricked and then afraid because he's been tricked but then he remembers oh i still have one last thing i can hold over them and he's yep. gonna exploit that 
or try to. It just doesn't really work. Also, I guess they had the, the intern in charge of chairs. <laughs> it, it's great that it is something that small that mm-hmm. gets, yeah. gives up their entire plot. Because with a lot of episodes of Mission Impossible, the plot isn't really like... Like, the villain doesn't know that they're being duped until at least two minutes. Like, right. And they've already gotten away. This guy's smart. He fucking figures it out. And it... It's the smallest thing that gives them away. I, I love it. It's so great. And when everything goes to crap, Dan Briggs punches him out. <laughs> because Dan Briggs has a small penis, apparently. <laughs> it's also uncut. <laughs> well, I was going to say, <laughs> Dan Briggs, I'm not commenting on Stephen Hill. I don't know. But okay. Dan Briggs, right. definitely. <laughs> Maybe he'd just been waiting all episode to punch him and he finally did it. There you go. It's payback for that. For that uh... I'm just waiting for the family of Stephen Hill to start listening to our recordings. Oh <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Rogash wakes up back in his cell and three of the vile flasks are in there with him. And you can hear this, like, ticking. Dan Briggs' voice is coming over the intercom. He says that the timing... He has 15 seconds to tell them the location of the fourth container. You just hear this very tense ticking. Those vials look exactly like the VX gas in the rock. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad somebody else thought <laughs> that. Very much so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the similarity is just in the look between the actual like nuclear devices and Fallout as well. The, yeah, the three plutonium things that fall out. Yeah, that, that's what this reminded me of. This scene was interesting. I don't really understand why it worked. Because you'd think such a big patriot would be willing to die for his country. But I guess the bacteria is like some kind of horrible, like the rock, like some kind of, you get mutated and it's really painful. And or then you like die. Chimera from Mission Impossible 2. This didn't bother me because one yeah. of the tropes that I really enjoy about spy fiction is the loyal diehard who does care and will go to all links to do yeah. what they need to do. But the moment it really is real, that they're going to die now and they're going to have to die for what they believe in, they shift completely. And it's like, no, 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 I, <laughs> I thought I could, but I'm not really ready to die right now, horribly melting. Yeah, I'm going to switch VX gas. This is VX poison gas. VX nerve gas. Bring it it kind of a little bit back. Uh, VX gas is the type of gas that is the justification for that fucking plane stunt in Mission Impossible 5. So we're tying right. I love that all (laughs) of us remember that it's called VX poison gas. Well, I always remembered it because I I was on the keto diet for a while and I really loved. Brussels sprouts. I mean, I still do love mm-hmm. Brussels sprouts, but I get them fresh off the stock. And every time I would handle them, it would, it would look like I'm <laughs> carrying the fucking VX gas. I would constantly uh, like tell my brother, like, do not move that! <laughs> Glass so, of plastic. Okay. To jump back, VX poison gas is really what was on the plane in Rogue Nation. I have never caught that. Yeah. Not only are all Mission Impossible movies and TV shows technically canon and sequels, not reboots, like in the same universe, but that also means that The Rock is now actually in the Mission Impossible canon. By extension, the James Bond franchise. Because he's Bond. Connery is... No, he's Uh, locked up in the... He's a spy, the British spy from the 60s who got locked up. You're right. Yeah. Like, just Connery's Bond. That's why Lazenby became Bond. It's uh, because no, he got no. locked up in America. Oh, no, no, we're not going to go uh, code name theory on this. No, no. Okay. Zach yeah, is well aware VX of my gas. code name theory. Page. VX gas is an actual uh, chemical compound. It is. 
Yeah. Don't ruin oh, this really? for me. Oh, I thought it was yeah. fictional. Yeah. So there you go. Details <laughs> of it were fictional. I do have to bring this up because this is really funny. George W. Okay. Bush yeah. once tried to say during the Iraq war that they were having this terrible gas. And as he explained it, a lot of people were like, you're reciting stuff you heard Nicolas Cage say in The Rock. He was like, <laughs> uh, you spasm and then your back breaks <laughs> right after your skin melts <laughs> off or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh wow, that's great. So I guess I realized we never said that he actually does give up the last location. Yeah. And also I like that the tick tick was just a metronome that uh Barney was like playing over the intercom. Gaslight, <laughs> really good on gaslight baby. And then here's the thing. They just let him go. But but he has that great line about like we're just gonna let him go, and he says something to the effect of like, no, we really didn't, because people are gonna <laughs> kill him. Like, like that's going to happen. Not, it's not it, even that big. He gets into the car with Cl the real Clemmy and is like, so I hear you told him everything. They, they tricked me. This is a weird thing about Mission Impossible. In one of the early episodes, it might even be the pilot. They talk about, no, it's the second episode. They talk about having to remove okay. a leader yeah, from the no nation. <laughs> and, and they flat out call out that, no, we're not going to kill him because that's not what we do. You know, we're not going to just shoot him with with a rifle, right. um, but they are awfully cavalier about flat out one hundred percent causing people to die. Because uh, in that episode, yeah, they're not going to uh, kill him with a gun; they're going to get somebody else to kill him. And in this one, they're like, "No, no, he's dead." It's the Batman Begins. The I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. <laughs> I will kill you, but I don't have to save you. They even go further than that. We just recently covered an episode where. The episode of Mission Impossible, like in the last four seconds, they blow the guy up. And it's what? like the whole thing is about tricking this guy. And then just oh, the yeah. goes off off screen. And we, all of us watching the episode when we were talking about it, went, okay, just to confirm, <laughs> they blew them up, right? Like that was real. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, you guys will have already heard that episode, The Diamond. And, yes. and it's, they don't give enough justification to straight up murder <laughs> these two people off screen. They say South yeah. African dictator, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the IMF will gank somebody if they feel it's needed. They just won't shoot them. They'll do it. All right. Just so you, your uh, listeners know this as being canon, we also recently discovered in an episode that we just recently released, but it's like a year old now, uh, called Elena that once somebody is disavowed, they send a, a like, non-IMF assassin to murder them. What? So, yeah. Think about how many assassins have been sent towards Ethan Hunt and then continue with your episodes. <laughs> or, you know, Luther or what's-his-face? Krieger deserved it, but Luther? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I like to imagine Ving Rhames <laughs> getting an assassin off his tail. Uh. I love how I ended that sentence with, I like to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the other thing to bad. note about the end of this episode is that like the, when Colonel Klimmy or Major Klimmy, as he actually is, gets there, like it's all back to normal. There's no gallows there. It doesn't look like the interior of the castle anymore. It just looks like a random house. Like they were never there. Ooh, yeah. That is every episode of Mission. I love to imagine Rogosh actually trying to explain what happens. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they tricked me. And they're like, how did he trick you? Well, oh my God. like, I got hit by a car. 
and then I woke up in this strange place and they told me it was 1969 and I was an American spy and I was bringing my secretary and like, it was just really confusing, man. And then I went to a trial. That was the episode. Now let's go into our spy fact versus spy fiction. So I've got a few things here. Delayed amnesia. Seemingly not a thing, but there was actually a studies done whether it was a thing. Apparently, there were concussed football players. This is a study done in, like, 1973. Concussed football players were interviewed immediately after they had a concussion. And they had, like, good recall for events that had occurred. But within 3 to 20 minutes, the recall for these events was lost. But so... in a control group, it was found that this delayed forgetting did not happen. So it's unclear whether or not it was a thing. But maybe by the time in 1966... They thought it was a real thing. What you're saying is a more realistic plan would be to get NFL players to just ram into Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Terry Tate office linebacker works very good go. about. <laughs> and then later on, they make a movie where Will Smith uh, is trying to um, tell the truth. <laughs> oh, tell the truth. <laughs> so like we said, we don't know what country Rogash is supposed to be from. It's not Russia. But... In 1966, when this would happen, the premier of Russia would have been Leonid, Leonid Brezhnev, who was the first secretary of the USSR from 1964 to 1982. He was preceded by Nikita Khrushchev. Also, so going back to that radio, you know, that Barney was faking, where there was a new president, it was 1969, that would have, there was a 1968 election. Lyndon B. Johnson was eligible for re-election, having only served le- or having served less than 24 months of JFK's term, but he decided not to run for, due to his failing health. Instead, running were Richard Nixon, Humphrey Hubert, and independent former Alabama Governor George Wallace. I think you mean Hubert Humphrey. Did I say that backwards? Hubert Humphrey, not Humphrey Hubert. Yes. Okay. I mean, Hubert is a weird first name, so we'll let you slide on that. <laughs> and I mean, Humphrey... It's, it's they're, two, both, they're both it's, weird. They're both first names. And Humphrey is a first name. But, and I mentioned this earlier. Yeah. See, I, I had it saved on my phone. I've been oh. ready for this shit. Okay. Yeah, because 1966 was the midterm elections, too. Right. Um, and so November 8 was the actual election. So right after these events would have occurred, right when this is airing, which Linda B. Johnson, he was not up because it was the midterms. But the Democrats apparently kicked butt and maintained control of com- both houses of Congress, which I'm reading right. about the 1966 election a lot, which this is cool too. It was the yeah. first election to be held after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. So All this right. was like this yeah. massive surge of African-American voters who previously had uh-huh. had a hard time voting because America is from right. that way. Was this the really contentious one that had like riots at the DNC or was that earlier? <laughs> Uh, um, I, I want to. S- I do not know. I think it I might have been. Right I don't know. Are you talking about the Chicago riots at the DNC? Yeah, because that would have been sixty-eight. Ah, so it would have been. Oh, it okay. would have been the the Nixon election then. Yeah, yeah, probably yeah, the presidential exactly. election then. That makes sense. Yeah. Zach, did you have anything else for spy fact versus spy fiction? I did my part with Stephen Castle. All right, there we go. <laughs> we go into our favorite quotes. Yeah, I kind of feel like we might all have the same favorite quote. <laughs> All right. Anyone what want to go first? Uh, Mine is the uh, inspiring, complete lack of confidence, <laughs> followed by him getting the hunchback or whatever the fuck he does with his posture. <laughs> right. Finds that Rogosh quote that's um, 
you are the most ineffective. So clearly you are the leader. That was my favorite bit. <laughs> Zach? So I also like the complete lack of confidence. I liked you were born to hang. Oh, that's a good quote. That's a good one, yeah. I like the part where Rogash says to his lawyer, you toad, that amused me. <laughs> and then I liked the final quote, sorry, we had to let him live. We didn't. Right. Yeah, that was yes. my favorite quote, too. Yeah. Was, oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about all these quotes this whole time. Quotes. <laughs> it's a 50-minute episode of TV. We're, we're bound to run into a few of them. <laughs> okay, so now it's time for our ratings. We, here on the Spotify Guys, we do a ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 martinis. 1 being awful spy movie. 10 being amazing and wonderful. Everything good hope for. So how would you guys rate this episode of Mission Impossible? All right, let's uh, get our let our guests go first. I'd go an eight and a half martinis out of ten. I really enjoy this episode. I mean, it's not perfect. It's not uh, what's a great like. It's not the conversation. It's not fucking. Uh, gonna say enemy of the state, but that's not perfect either. But it's still, it is a really great episode of this show, and it shows you everything that you come to expect out of like a great Mission Impossible episode. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna same thing. Uh, eight out of ten. This is such a great spy story. The only mm-hmm. thing really that keeps it from being just great is that it's a 50 minute TV show. So like it's just limited. I would love to see right. this story pushed out to two hours. Add in some extra wrinkles, some extra development, some action sequences, and like this would make a really great thrilling. Mission Impossible 8, maybe? Um, just something. Right? Like, <laughs> I, I'd like to see this done again. I dug it. Is that? So I will give it a 7 out of 10. Right. I like Mission Impossible, but I'm not like an uber fan like the rest of you. I thought this episode was pretty engaging. I wasn't bored. Nobody jumped out of a plane, or nobody <laughs> fought a tiger, and there weren't any crazy gadgets. Not that that's really a disappointment. But I thought it was like a pretty solid episode of a TV show that's still pretty old, though. So that's when how does I somebody fight a tiger? Thank you. I, about that myself. <laughs> I started like, wait, did, did Bond fight a tiger? You know what I mean? Like nothing crazy happens. Wait, hmm. did you guys do the the preview for episode eight, Rich Impossible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I remember saying that you yeah. wanted him to <laughs> fight a tiger. So like that's the kind of rumors I was hoping you guys would talk. Oh about. man. Like what crazy stuff was going to happen in the movie? Not I oh, mean... I heard this actor from movie two <laughs> is going to come back. <laughs> guys, this. You guys need to understand, this is one of the least crazy episodes of the show. I mean, we have our <laughs> silliness ranking, and we have ones with heroin stuff, snakes, uh, LSD Ghost sugar bees. cubes. See, that's what I want. See, yeah, yeah, I, I want to uh, repeat. Yeah, there is an actual ghost in an episode, and they end I the episode with someone episode. going, I don't know, maybe it was real. Okay, worst episode of that season? Kind of fun still, directed by the same person as this one. What? That's quite the contrast. All right, Christian, what's your rating? All right, so I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. The main reason that I wanted to watch this episode, is and I'm the one who picked it, is because I knew that the part from Fallout and the the beginning part of Mission Impossible 1 were based on this scene where they do this whole thing to trick someone into giving their information. I was like, all right, I need to see the original. And I liked it. I thought it was good. It was, like we said earlier, those things were just one bit of a larger story. So it was really good to see what they can do with that as like the entire premise of 
the episode. And I liked that, like, the acting was really good. There were two things that I was missing. And they were they could have been done in this episode. Like, I wanted a mask pull. We saw Roland mm-hmm. Hand, you know, disguised. I wanted a mask, just him pulling off a mask. And I don't know, I'm trying to, if they actually really do that a lot in the show. Or is it just him getting disguised, putting on the makeup on? Not yet. We just got okay. to one of the very first actual full head masks in one of our more recent episodes. But like, it definitely has not become a trope of the series yet. Okay. All right. That and, I was wondering to, about. That. Uh, to give you guys a little bit of like foray into the future, every episode I've watched the '80s show has a mask pull. So. Okay. Okay. The other <laughs> thing I was missing from this was the part where all the walls fall down and they reveal mm-hmm. it that is like a set, which obviously couldn't great. have happened here because it's an actual house, but. I was waiting for that to happen when he's in the cell. Uh, that last part where he just has the uh, the three vials in them. I was waiting for like the walls to fall apart. He finds out it's not a real cell. I can't remember if they've ever done that mouse trap or whatever you call it. Yeah. What mm-hmm. what's the there's a name for it, but I can't Something like it. that. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember any time that I've seen in the original show where they do that. I think that may just be a De Palma first movie thing well it's a great thing well, it's great yeah. it, it happens they do that a couple of times in the movies because they also do it when they do the big fake out with the nuclear apocalypse right yeah and, and i think it's just because in the tv show there never really is a haha we tricked you it's haha we deuced out 10 minutes ago deal with it <laughs> right so, that, I mean, those are the only two, like, other than, you know, the thing about the trial. Even though it was weird, I went with it and I still enjoyed it. But overall, it was good to just get an episode. Other than, I think I've seen the pilot, and I've seen one or two of the episodes where they brought the syndicate in. But this was, like, a standalone episode that I've heard about so much, because uh, McCoy likes to talk about this on podcasts. And I figured, I need to watch it. So, I enjoyed it, and also, I just loved having you guys on, because I sometimes... On this show, I get way into some like a Mission Impossible thing, and Zach will have no idea what I'm talking about. What are you gonna do? We are, I guess, <laughs> experts. That yeah. was the reveal out of 2020 that really shocked me the most. That apparently I'm a Mission Impossible expert now. <laughs> a classic TV expert, actually. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Diverge, for joining us. Would you guys like to plug your stuff as is done? Me personally, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Father Baldor. Uh, I also do the Mission Impossible podcast where we talk about an episode or a movie of Mission Impossible going from the very beginning to the very end. We're covering it all. Uh, and you can also, also, also find me over at oneofus.net on their home release podcast and an occasional movie or TV review. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Nathan Flynn. Um, like he said, Mission Impossible is our baby. The Twitter page is at Impossible, I M P O D I B L E. And we also have our Instagram, which is Mission Impossible. Our Facebook, we got a Facebook group as well, the Impossible Missions Force. So if you just want to join the discussion, we also have. Uh, a few interviews coming up. Actually, at this point, you will have heard us interview Brian Trenchard Smith and Leslie and Warren. And hopefully there have been like a thousand more interviews since that point. <laughs> also, you can find me at oneofus.net. Great. Well, thank you to Nathan and Aaron for joining us. You can find us on social media, the Spy Fi Guys, on your Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Christian. And we are the Spy Fi Guys, signing off. Spy Fi.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. The theme music is by Jer Fitzgerald and Big Man Joe. Media reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.